Welcome everyone to the Zojo Talk podcast. I am Paul Lefevre, the Zojo Developer Evangelist. And this time, as my guest, I have Carol Keeney of Bikini Software. Carol, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, Carol, as you know, if you've ever listened to any of the podcasts, typically I start things off by putting all the work onto the guests and saying, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to start using Zojo? Okay. Um, So my degree is in computer science, and I have been doing programming, project management, database work, all that stuff for more than 20 years. Um, Most of it in consulting. I started straight out of college into consulting. When, let's see, let's go back to the late 90s, I met a certain fellow by the name of Bob Keeney. And at that point, he was coding at night. He was he was an electrical engineer, and he would stay up until 2 in the morning coding for fun. And at the time, I was, I was managing a good-sized development staff. And I said, you know, I've hired people with less experience than you. <laughs> so he decided to become a full-time programmer. And he was actually the one who came across Zojo and began working with it first. And uh, that is how I became involved. I probably went to my first Zojo conference 2005, 2006, something like that. But um, I generally approach it more from the database side. My background is really strong on databases. So that and the project management stuff. Yes, as uh, at the Zojo conferences, you're often referred to as database goddess, I think is the, the special title you uh, wear. I, or... I have been known to claim that title, yes. <laughs> or claim, that's the phrase I want to use. You've claimed that title for yourself. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about databases. I know you do have a long background in working with uh, databases. So which databases would you say you've worked with the most at this point? Probably the most would be SQL Server. I've done Gosh, several projects. There's there's a, a some a couple different CRM systems I've supported over the years that are SQL Server based. So I do a lot of stuff with SQL Server, all the way from the upfront, like doing data modeling kind of stuff to try to figure out requirements, all the way through implementing stored procedures, whatever it may be. Related to that question, perhaps then is all right. So which would be the, your favorite database you like working with? Is it also Microsoft SQL Server? Yeah, I'd probably say SQL Server, too, just because there's a lot there. There's a lot you can do. There's lots of tools out there if you want to play with different things. There's a lot. I used SQL Server for a few years. Probably at this point, it's going on like 10 years ago, back when I was doing .NET work. SQL Server is a pretty nice database, I thought, from a usability standpoint. Like you said, it had a lot of tools available. Even the tools that came with it seemed to work pretty well. Uh, particularly compared to things like Oracle, which is what I was used to before. Yeah, and I worked with Oracle previously too. And yeah, there's different tool sets for Oracle, but a lot of them don't just come with it. So depending on what whoever you're working for and what they decide to buy, you may or may not have a lot out there. Right, yeah. The, the stuff it comes with is, you know, usually it looks like it was designed in the 1970s. And, uh, yep. And, so then you're always like researching what other tools you can use with it and uh, then going to management. I need this tool. Please approve this. <laughs> yeah. Then they're done that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's fun times. Uh, working with large databases is uh, perhaps, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you have a different perspective on this because a, a, a lot of Zojo users probably do not often work with large, you know, enterprise type databases like SQL Server or Oracle. 
So what would you say are some of the things to keep in mind when using Zojo with those types of databases? Mm, I'll always go back to you got you got to start with a good design on the database. And, you know, I've spoken about this at conferences multiple times that there's there's a lot of simple things you need to do with just the way you break out your tables and make sure you got it structured right. Um, lots of good books on the topic, lots of resources out there. You know, it's, it's you got to have a good foundation to start from. And we've seen we've seen in, in projects that we've inherited a lot of times we see lots of ugly database designs. <laughs> yes, I think everyone has seen ugly database designs. And it's always funny how, you know, often people start with the best of intentions and end up with an ugly database design. <laughs> yep. What do you think causes that? How do how do they, all these ugly databases, you know, database models, database designs end up happening? Because I mean, people know they're they're working with them. They know, oh, my database sucks. How do you think it ends up like that? I think a lot of it would, probably comes from maybe taking the client too literally and saying, oh yeah, that's all we need. That's all we're ever going to need. When in reality, these things always morph over time. You know, you, you can see where they started thinking it's just going to be this little thing, and then you know pieces get hung on the left and on the right and off the middle somewhere. And it's like, well, that doesn't really fit together the way it should. But people don't want to go back and refactor them after they've gotten so far down the pike. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, and refactoring a database, I mean, that's in it, in and of itself probably doable. But then if you've got a lot of code that's depending on a particular database structure, then you run into a lot more risk, perhaps. Yep. So yep. then, so then they're like, "Well, we'll just tack this on here, or we'll have this table that has 300 columns because that won't break anything." <laughs> yeah, I just did a, a conversion of a CRM system to a Sojo web app recently, and that it literally had a table that had like, I think it was somewhere like 50 columns, in, and it was just here. Let's just put everything right here. <laughs> it's all in one place. It's easy. You don't have yeah. to worry about it. Yeah. yeah, I had uh, someone email me a while ago that was asking a, a database question. They obviously hadn't designed a lot of stuff in the past, but they, they wanted to know if there was a, a way to keep the columns in a particular order. So I guess they wanted their database to remain structured in some manner, but they wanted to, like, add some columns to a table, but, like, insert the column in uh -huh. a particular order. And I was, you know, and the question to me was, like, what? Why do you care? <laughs> you know, because the column order, yeah, the column order is irrelevant, right? The column order doesn't matter. It, uh, you know, you pick the columns in the order you want. But the, when they were looking in their tool that showed the database structure, it was just pulling the columns, you know, in the order they were created, essentially. And, it, and that bothered them when they looked at it. And they're like, is there any way I can change these? And I'm like, well, you can, you know, drop and recreate the tables. But... <laughs> and then I looked, and they were asking about SQLite, which is, you know, obviously lightweight, you know, not enterprise in any fashion. And then I did a little digging and I'm like, I don't think any database really has a way to do that. And I didn't, I didn't see that that was a common yeah, thing. Yeah, so, probably not without doing a drop and a recreate. You know, and then when you get to large enterprise databases, that's not always a trivial task because there's a lot of data. You get to rebuild indices perhaps. And if the tables are related with foreign keys and stuff, you might not be able to really just drop yep. the table. Uh, <laughs> you might have other tables that are going to freak out. So then you've got other issues. So, so yeah, as you know, things aren't always as easy as they Definitely. seem. Yep. All right. So you brought up a few good points there on uh, how databases can end up in a, Almost a sorry, sorry state, a sad. You get a yes. sad database. 
sad database. That's too bad. And so how do you go about not having sad databases? You've talked about doing data modeling and stuff. Do you use specific tools to help you design a database? Do you sketch these things out? Do you get the world, a whiteboard wall where you... Some of it depends on the environment and the client. Yeah. And those tools have changed over years. Um, Right now, I'm using something called Navicat on my desktop, which is a handy little lightweight, easy-to-use sort of thing. Um, I have come up where, you know, through working with large corporations, trying to design, you know, uh, HR database for Sprint, for example. In those places, you get, yeah, lots more sophisticated tools, and, and you get a more, you get larger requirement sessions where you've got a whole bunch of facilitation going on. you got 30 people in a room arguing about, what do they need and where do they need it and how do they need it? And you go back and take what you learned and, and put it together and hopefully a coherent whole. Um, <laughs> but, but for the needs for what we do for bikini, they're, they're not quite that sophisticated. It's usually a little bit simpler and it's usually more of a client interview kind of situation. And we can go back and say, all right, go back, put things together, put some stuff on paper and then bring it back to them. I find, I find having a simple data model is a really good discussion tool working with clients because it's it's robust enough that it's a picture that you can you can take to them and say here's how it's going to work and you can talk about how it's worked but in reality it's it's something that's an actual yeah you're going to use it to generate the ddl at the end of it so it's hey here's a pretty picture but no there's really some real meat behind this and DDL, for those that uh, don't know, data definition language, those are like the create tables and other statements actually create the database specifically based on the design. Because the design is supposed to be a little bit more abstract so that you could technically, you know, implement it in SQL Server yep. or Oracle, maybe even SQLite. Uh, and it's, you know, like you're saying, a higher level so that hopefully a non-programmer, a non-database administrator can read it and get the gist of what's going on, understand the type of things that are going in there, understand the relationships between the types of data without them getting too bogged down in the details. And you certainly don't want, you know, people that aren't implementing the details to get bogged yeah. down in the details. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like you said, there's a difference between the logical design versus the actual physical design you put into the database. It's a translation. Sometimes it's sometimes it's a big difference. Sometimes not so much. Yeah, yeah, it definitely depends on the the database. So yeah, I've built databases that have you know hundreds of tables that are connected and with or end up running with millions of lines of data in the tables. And you know, you need different ways to present and work with that than when you're dealing with uh, you know SQLite database that has you know three yeah. tables. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the demos always have like five, you know, here, let's draw a database, five tables, that'll do it, right? Yeah. So you've got a client, they're coming to you with a project, they need to store some stuff. Do you start with a data model? Is that like the first thing when you're gathering the requirements with the customer? Do you kind of say, you know, I'm going to start from the, I need to understand the data that they need to collect, or do you start from a different uh, Avenue. Yeah, from, from a design standpoint, I think you've got to talk about what is the data. And part of that conversation is what are you doing with the data, which will help you figure it out. But yeah, if you've got if you get the data and you get the data right, you should be able to do whatever they need to do with it. They shouldn't be able to come up with a process that you can't handle. So yeah, the data is where we start. We I would often do that sort of thing. Type in uh, you know maybe even use. Uh, 
spreadsheets to fill in like dummy data for them to get a feel for how things might might look so that they can because uh, not everyone's great at abstract yep. uh, concepts and imagining things so you often have to just say fill in you almost make it look like a spreadsheet all right yeah. this is your data and because uh, they, they see the data as the actual values rather than the structure yep. of it and uh, so you got to be able to provide And, and as a side point, that's one of the nice things about Zojo. It's pretty easy to throw a kind of prototype together and show them stuff. And you're right. Yeah, a lot of clients just need to see it on the screen and go, what are you talking about? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, long before I worked for Zojo, even when I was doing .network, I would often use Zojo for that exact purpose, to throw together something that would be a prototype that would connect to whatever database we had of data. Sometimes the, the clients would supply some set of data that maybe they already had or they needed to migrate in or use with the new app, and you could maybe just grab some stuff from it. And it wouldn't be the, the actual data model per se. You would just be able to grab some actual practical stuff from them to yep. show it to kind of get them moved along further in the process, so yep. to speak. Yeah. We, we, we do a fair amount of projects where somebody's coming from some, oh, I've had the system for 10 years and now I need to have it rewritten kind of thing. And just, yeah, the, the, the user interfaces have changed so drastically. It's, it's nice to be able to just put together a, here's a mock-up. Here's, what, here's how it's going to feel when you have it. Something tangible can make a big difference in getting approval for a project, you know, getting the client to sign the dotted line to pay yeah. for the project, all that stuff, yeah. all that good stuff that, that matters in the end because uh, people have to pay for building this stuff. And uh, typically these apps are, you know, big, powerful, mission critical. So they're going to be expensive and they're going to want to, you know, understand what they're paying for. Yeah. yeah, we actually did a really big project several years ago for a very large financial services firm. And ultimately what we were there for was just to do the prototyping. They, they, they were having a hard time getting their own IT people to do what they needed to do. So we built a whole prototype in Zojo. This was even before the web version was out that um, we, uh, we built the whole thing so they could take it to their IT people and go here, here's what we want. Now go build this. Oh, that's funny. Cause they just couldn't work with the IT people. Yeah. You know, I've seen that too. I mean, the, Places where I've worked and then have left, but went back to do consulting yeah. for them, have always treated me differently when I was the consultant, yep. as opposed to when I was actually on the development staff or the IT staff. And and it was almost as if, oh, well, you're a consultant now. Whatever you say is golden and 100% correct yep. and we'll trust you as opposed to the group that we've worked with for a really long time whom we know really well. Uh, I, I just found that to be a bizarre uh, behavior, but uh, I hear lots of people repeat that to me and say, oh, yeah, I yep. see that all the yep. time. When I started my career, I was with uh, Anderson Consulting, and I remember reading an article about that, you know, like the, the 10 reasons to hire a consultant. And, yeah, sometimes you just, you know, it's the pro, you know, the outside expert kind of thing. And, it, and yeah, I agree with you. How can I be the outside expert when I used to work here? But, hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, in other times it's like how can you really be an expert if you're coming from the outside and, you know, your team that's worked on all this stuff has already worked on it. But, you know, maybe you just want different opinions or you want to shake up that team and get them to approach something from a different perspective and they're, and they're too boxed in and they're never going to think that way. So you bring in someone else and they challenge their assumptions and they give them different approaches and then everybody's happy. And, and that's what, a, you know, a good consultant hopefully is yep. able to do. Yep. So 
here's a topic that I remember would often come up, still comes up from time to time too, is uh, store procedures in databases. Yeah. Now, you've said you've done a fair amount of work with those. Obviously, Microsoft SQL Server has robust support for store procedures, as did yep. Oracle. The, those two I worked with the most. I did a lot of store procedure work with those. Now, and I often run into people that are of the camp that store procedures are great, but there's also people of the camp that store procedures are the evil and should be avoided at all costs. Where do you sit on that spectrum? They're, they're great when you use them in the right way. I guess part of the issue that, and this is what you see, like if you're working with the Zojo app, if you got some of that code, some of the, the business logic in the stored procedure, well, it's sort of hidden from the programmer's view. It's, it's you know, you, you something happens and say it's a something that's triggered that, you know, the database is suddenly updated and you have no control over it and you don't know why it happened. That's, that's not good. But, um, there's lots of good uses for stored procedures in terms of like what I do a lot of on the SQL server side is reporting. You know, you've got different reports and you want to have a standardized way of saying, how do we pull an accounts receivable list or whatever it may be. So you have that piece in a stored procedure, no matter who's doing whatever report or, you know, it's a web report or it's a, you know, a desktop report, whatever, everybody's using the same approach as to how you pull that data. And for that kind of stuff, it's really good. I've worked with, um, I've done several implementations of a, a CRM, Customer Records Management System, for not for uh, performing arts organizations. So they have, you know, like they have, they're selling tickets and there's different ways of doing subscriptions and there's different ways of doing, um, you know, packages. Like I buy these three and just having a standard way that no matter where you're pulling it from, everybody sees the same information and you can count for it the same way it really makes a difference so you use the stored procedure to do that or does the stored procedure do work to collate that data uh in that case there's some of both that system it's a package system um so there are a lot of stored procedures that manage that so yeah no matter where you're selling a ticket that the the right tables get updated in the background that sort of thing but also to say yeah here's our standard way of saying here's how you list the 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 Here's how you list a package and what's the pieces of the package and how does the money go into the package and that kind of stuff. That sounds similar. One thing I did, you know, we had a reporting. Of course, you know, any enterprise system reporting is pretty huge. They want to, uh, you know, spend more than they spend on the software on analyzing the data (laughs) that the software creates. But uh, so I had built a system of store procedures that would do similar to what you're describing. They, They would chug in the background and essentially take the the data that was in the relational database and kind of massage it and move it out into, uh, at the time, I think I called it like a data mart or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I've worked into with a, di- a different data structure that was more geared towards reporting. So it had fewer tables. Yeah. Uh, the relationships were tweaked, maybe twisted a little bit. Uh, pivoted is the word, yes. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Star schemaed something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, some of those things elude me right now. But uh, things were adjusted so that when you were writing a report, it was easier than when you were, you know, doing the transactional processing of the data. Yeah, and, uh, actually, I did a big project like that. It was oh, late '90s, and I was hired. There was a, it was an energy company, and they bought up like six different other energy companies. These were people doing, you know, electricity to the house, gas to the house, that kind of stuff. 
So they had all these companies and eventually they want to have them all on one accounting system, but they weren't there yet. So we built at the time what we called the data warehouse that pulled all the data from these six or seven different systems and said, okay, here's how we're, here's how we're showing accounting information. Here's how we, here's how we manage customers and what is a customer and that sort of thing. Hmm. It really drove a lot of good conversations with the different organizations on, you know, let, let's talk about what are the, 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 there's a lot of different subtleties in a lot of those things. And if you really want, you know, apples and apples, how much money did company A make versus company B, it takes a while to get there. And it, it, it was a good, a good process in, in going through all that. And, and I think it helped expedite the actual up, up conversion. They went to a PeopleSoft accounting system. I think it actually helped that. One other big use for store procedures that I found back in the day was for performance characteristics. Um, if you're doing a lot of data, like this thing that I just described, if it was moving data, you know, chugging through it and then essentially setting it up in different tables and different structures, having all that run on the database server itself was often way faster, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, lots of rows, millions of rows. It was way faster than having, you know, some sort of client software that would request the information. So all that stuff would have to be sent across a network of some kind, processed on another computer, and then pushed back to the database. That Just cutting that, you know, entire data transfer part out of the equation. Yeah, mine, this was 10, 15 years ago, so networks and stuff were a little bit slower than they are today. But Cutting that out could often make a you know one of these batch processes complete much much faster yep. than they would otherwise. Yep, definitely. And and you also have better tools. Hopefully, like if you're looking at a SQL Server kind of situation where you can run those things on the server and and run the tools of performance monitoring and say, okay, what's really happened? Is it really is that index I set up or not? Yeah, yeah, that was good. The only thing I found that was a pain in the butt was just you know, I mean debugging store procedures at least back then was challenging i mean because i mean just in general when you're dealing with you know selects and stuff like that you know things are happening in sets so it's not like you can often look at it in quite the iterative way you're you're used to when you're dealing with code so that's kind of a mind bender yeah there there's there's definitely some oh more stone age kind of tools in terms of yeah let's just stick a select in the middle of it so i can see what's going on that's yeah (laughs) Yeah, not not such nice interactive debuggers in that in that world. I haven't personally used <clears throat> excuse me store procedures a lot with Zojo, uh, mostly because I don't work with enterprise type databases as much anymore. And obviously, SQLite has no reason to ever have a store procedure, being right. that it runs you know it's embedded. Postgres does have store procedures. That's probably the database server I use the most these days. But I haven't spent a lot of time digging into that. I know that Postgres has. I believe some ability to write store procedures in a variety of languages. I, do, have you used Postgres much to? I have not done. I've done some real rudimentary setting stuff up in Postgres, but for whatever reason, that is not not a database we've used a lot with our client base as of this point. We tended to be more MySQL, SQLite, and then the work I do on SQL Server is generally not Zojo related. So transitioning to when you're building your or talking with your clients for the projects, you probably need to do a fair amount of requirements analysis. <laughs> yep, it's 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 a it's an art, an art, and yeah, lots of people don't play in that that theater. Well, and that's a tricky thing because, uh, and it'd be fun if you could maybe talk about some of the, some points that you think can help make that effective. Because I mean, when I've worked with you know groups on that, you know, sometimes it's all you get 
you get the team that just writes down everything the client says and then just goes and makes that. And I'll have a link to the image in the show notes that shows this. It's a great image I have that shows a picture of a, a tire swing on a tree. And it, it says, you know, what the client wants. And it's a picture of a tire swing on the tree. Yeah. And then it has another frame that says what the client asked for. And it's not a picture of a tire swing on a tree. It's a picture of a tree with like a branch floating in midair that's not connected to anything. And a yeah. tire swing that's got like, you know, 50 ropes connected to it and a bunch of other. And it's just funny. It's got like 10 panels, each of them. You know, what the client asked for, what the client, what the uh business analysts heard what the developers made and none of these things are at all related to each other and and but you often see people that will just say well it's safest to just build what the client asked for but the problem is the client often i don't know doesn't know what they want doesn't ask really well doesn't have the right language to ask yeah that sort of thing right so what sort of things do you do to help mitigate some of those problems well it's funny that you talk about that i think back to Early on in my career, they had what they called waterfall methodologies. Oh, yeah. System development and life cycles. Sounds so important. And you'd start with it. And, 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 you know, at that point, they tried to make it very engineering-based. Like, okay, everybody, an architect knows how to build a house, so, a, a you know, a system designer should be able to design a system, and it should be very structured, and we should be able to ask these five questions and get these answers, and boom, out falls the system. But... You know, over time, part of the issue, well, I think it's a great thing, is that technology is always changing. You know, it's not like you can say, here's step one, here's step two, and, and at, you know, if you do these 27 steps at the end, you will always come out with the perfect system. So I think I think there's a lot of trying to get into the mind of the client, and, and there's got to be a lot of open-ended uh Discussion, because yes, you're right. They they won't have the right words. I'll be saying something, and you're like, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I think what you really mean is, and and some of that is just, you know, having done this for more than 20 years, is you, you start getting those clues, and you start having better tools for having those conversations. And again, I like my data models. I think a picture's worth a thousand words, so that's usually something that helps. Let's draw some pictures and put this together and see how it feels. Well, and like you said, too, you know, providing a prototype of something is handy as well. So, yep. you know, the, if the client is able to describe stuff enough that you're like, like you said, that, that important phrase where this is what you said, but I think you perhaps really meant this. You can throw together prototypes and pictures and stuff and show them that. And then they'll be either like, oh, my God, no, I wasn't <laughs> thinking that at all. Or they'll be like, yeah, exactly. This is what I w- This is what I said. And you're like in your mind thinking, that's not what you said at all. But, okay, we're back on the same page. So. <laughs> it's that mind reader capability you got to have. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And it, it, and it goes back to, I mean, a phrase you often hear, you, you heard this about Apple a lot, is the ability to say no sometimes. Mm-hmm. And just say, no, that's, that's, that's perhaps not a great idea. Of course, the trick is, you know, phrasing that properly so that uh, you're not just, you know, yeah. Looking them and looking them in the eye, giving them a stare, like, no, not gonna do that. Yep. And then don't say anything else. And then you just look like you're some sort of evil genius, maybe, I don't know. But <laughs> we've talked about we've had to actually fire some clients sometimes because I guess part of our view is you tell us what you want and it's up us up to us to figure out how to get there. And sometimes you get a client who just wants to tell you how to do your job and it's like, 
no, no, we can't do that. that that's, we're not going to end up with a good product if we go down that road. Right. Yeah, that's that's not going to really be a great recipe. I mean, if they knew how to build it, then maybe they should build it. Or, I mean, that that's where you run into, you know, some clients just think they have all the ideas and they just need to hire, you know, the grunt programmer to yeah. code it up. I just need you to code it up. I got it. It's all figured out. You know, yeah. like the idea is golden. I just need you to code it up. And, yeah, yeah. And that's one of those red flags that uh, you're often like, you approach that tentatively and like, hmm, odds are there's some badness that's awaiting. Yeah, and then the we, we, we also get the ones like, oh, it's just easy. And and our usual response is, sure, it's just code. <laughs> it's a question of how much and what the heck it's supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, that, well, that's the other thing. You, you'll often get people that don't you know, either think a modification's easy or think an entire app is easy, but don't have any basis for that description. Um, yeah. They, they get in more. I have seen that where some people will just repeat that over and over to almost convince you that it's easy. Yeah. So that you might uh, overpromise on something maybe. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a technique they're using, almost a sales technique to kind of. Yeah. Yeah. We had a conversation recently with a client that Said, well, we originally thought the system was going to cost X amount of dollars. And I'm like, where did that number come from? Because I know I didn't give it to you. And I don't know who could have told you that since we didn't have requirements done at that point. You know, it's like, okay, that's a lovely number. But yeah, there's nothing behind it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. And it, and you do occasionally you'll get the customer that'll send you a bunch of stuff and it'll be like, all right, I need the you know, X, Y, Z and a few other things. What will that cost? Yeah. And it's just, you know, it, it, you almost you almost want to reply to that email and say, that will cost you $475,362.83. Yep. And it's like, a, you know, you sent me three paragraphs and that's what it comes down to. And yeah, we, we get just, that a lot. Like, yeah, we're supposed to just have osmosis and understand what those three paragraphs translate into, you know, thousands of lines of code. Yeah, so it's... It's, you know, that becomes the requirements analysis process at that point where you have to, you know, start to extract the real things they're talking about so that you can break it down and, you know, come back with some idea of what it is you're actually trying to create. Yep, yep. And I go back to my early consulting experiences where we had very lovely, sophisticated models for doing estimating based on function points. And you'd have all this... <laughs> You know, at, at the bottom end, you'd throw in a 20% for contingency and a 20% for something else. It's like, and then, you know, then the miracle occurs, and that's in that 20%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As uh, Estimating a software project like that, I don't know, it's a starting point, I guess. Yeah, but... yeah you got to give them a ballpark. Is it 10000 or is it 100000 But. Yeah, you gotta educate the client on. No, this is really a ballpark. <laughs> yep, tricky trickiness. Yeah, yeah, we're real careful about what we put in our contracts. Haven't been bitten by that one before. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I could see where that is uh, something you would learn from pretty darn quickly. Yep. Yep. And you know, you, so, got, you got to appreciate where the client's coming from. They want a number. They want something they can hold on to, but. Again, it's, you know, I wish I wish this was something that was, yeah, you take these seven things and you put it in this machine and out drops the answer, but hasn't quite morphed into that yet. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and that would be doable if, you know, the projects were simple and, you know, similar to other things. But the reason why people want custom apps made for them is because they want them to work their way and do their things and their things are known only to them so it makes it harder to build them so yeah we did one like that it was a payroll system specific for teachers in a specific state and we've done payroll systems before like payroll yeah we understand taxes 941s irs blah 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 but the stuff they came up with that was so specific to a teacher in this state, you know, how they manage their retirement system, how they manage their hours that they work, even though they're salaried and just amazing complexity. Probably didn't need to be that complex, but that's, you know, it's a state government kind of thing. And that's how they set things up. And no, there was no way we could have seen that going into it, that it was going to be that, that convoluted. Well, if it was a state government, it would have been a state assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I'm thinking the contingency factor on that one's more like thirty or forty. <laughs> so when you do work with uh, Zojo and your databases, uh, you guys, I know, have a product, uh, Active Record. Yep. I think that uh, is that something you use with almost all things at this point. And and don't you tell a little bit about how that might be helpful yep. for people? Yep. What it does is, uh, and Bob could explain this better than I can, but uh, basically it lets you take your database model and put things into Zojo so there are objects in, the, in your Zojo project. And that gives you things like, you know, auto-filling in the names and that sort of thing. It, 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 I guess maybe the best way to say it, kind of abstracts the database into your Zojo project. And it's, we find it real helpful. It's part of our when we train new employees, we have them do a project the old way without using active record. And then we say, now here's the magic sauce. And then they get to use that. And it's like, okay, yeah, it's good. Um, and and you see different people want to go different levels of that. Some people want to take the database model and import it into Zojo and have some tool where it's generating the actual um, user interface. And we found that's too far to go with it. That there's, you know, you got to have a place for the business logic, and you don't want that necessarily tied into the user interface directly. Mm. But, but no, we find, yeah, we find Active Director to be a really helpful tool in managing the database within the project. And so, yeah, essentially, that gives you classes that map to the database structure. Correct. So, um, you have like a, you know, if you've got a person table that's sitting in your database, you might end up with a, an equivalent person class in your Zojo app that you can then use and it will communicate with the database for you. So you don't have to worry a lot about database specific stuff. So does this thing communicate with uh, SQL Server that you work with a lot or other databases? Or Again, the, the SQL Server stuff I've done has not been Zojo based. I, okay. I don't think there's any reason why it can't. I haven't ever played in that arena, though. But, yeah, we, we tend to use it. We Again, we do a lot of C, uh, SQLite and MySQL. So we use it. We, we don't do projects without using Active Director. It just, it's just so useful. Right, yeah. So SQLite and MySQL are common. Yeah, MySQL is a very common database for a lot of people. I don't really use it much myself. Uh, but I know a lot of people love it, absolutely love it. Not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> it's a database. It's, it's There's lots of them out there. Yeah, like anything else. I mean, I suppose it's whatever you're comfortable with. And, 
yeah. people got really comfortable with MySQL over the years just because it was prevalent. It was often on web servers. It was often yeah. the first one to use. For many years, it was wicked easy to set up and install compared to other databases like Postgres. So yep. it was just easier to jump in and start playing around with. Um, and then, you know, once you get hooked on something like that, you just tend to stick with it, I suppose. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, it's on my list to play more of Postgres. I really haven't done much in that world. So, yeah. And obviously the SQL server, you, you don't have the cross platform, so it's not as usable as, as in the Zojo world. Yeah, yeah. SQL Server currently only runs on Windows, although I believe I heard Microsoft recently announced they're going to have a version for Linux at some point, maybe next year. Do you hear that? Uh, I've heard that. I haven't seen the details behind it. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yes, I don't think there are any details behind it. I think it's more of an announcement yes. than anything else, but... Uh... I, I think Microsoft has made a statement, you know, because another, I mean, Microsoft's, you know, doing more things with Linux now than they used to. And sure. like the, the new version of uh, Windows 10 that'll be coming out this summer added a uh, Linux shell to it as a supplement to the regular DOS command yep. prompt that's built in. So now you can actually, you know, I forget how you kick it off. I think in the DOS command prompt, you type bash. That's what it is. You type bash, and it starts the bash Linux shell. And you've got, like, this little version of Linux running in a command line, and it can run regular Linux apps. And including, as I did a test, I built a Zojo Linux app. And it worked? (laughs) Copied it over to Windows. I built it on Windows. So I'm running Zojo on Windows. I built a Linux app on Windows. And then it ran from this bash shell on this you know it's right now it's in beta but this new version of windows which is just weird no (laughs) No other term for it (laughs) but yeah so go figure but i so you know maybe they have some little trick on their sleeve where they're going to maybe try and get uh, sql server running on linux which will be uh, interesting yep i mean i don't know how that uh necessarily fits into pricing or anything like that for them but uh yeah their prices come down quite a bit so i think i think you know they're trying to look at competing with the the mysqls of the world maybe i don't know i think you know for a long time they tried to be the oh i don't know the biggest monster on the block and and now that's like well the world is changing and we've got to be able to do do things on different platforms and and I don't know. You think you think SQL Server for mobile? <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> that would seem unnecessary. <laughs> it seems ugly to me. <laughs> well, last thing to just maybe touch on before we uh, wrap up is uh, you've done a little bit in related perhaps to, well, maybe not directly related to that, but I mean, working on consulting projects, you have to, these things take time and you got to work with the, your customers, your, your clients, over a period of time. And I see you've done a little bit of work with uh, the Agile and or Scrum methodology for for doing that. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you just maybe talk to a couple points about that as to, you know, how often you're able to use that, how well you think it works versus other things, that sort of stuff. The, the initial big project we worked it on worked, used agile approach on was uh, the one for a financial services company that was a prototyping project. And it was perfect for that. Using that approach you do, you have what's a, it's a scrum or it's a 
iteration, whatever people use different terminology. And for, for that project, we were doing three-week iterations. So you'd start out at the beginning of the three weeks, you'd have a day or two of, okay, what are we trying to get done? Boom, here's here's about a week's worth of coding, well, a few days worth of analysis, weeks worth of coding, and then you go back and you hand the client an end product every three weeks. Boom, 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 boom. And it was just great because it was very quick to be able to deliver stuff to the client. It wasn't necessarily the end application we were delivering, but it was enough functionality that we kept, in this case, we were moving them forward in terms of what were their needs. And it was a way to get that stuff real in a really quick way. Very helpful for us. And we, we tend to use that approach on our projects. We don't formalize it. We don't necessarily have, you know, daily meetings to meet with the client to talk about things, which it, if you go to the formal approach of Agile, you'll do those things. But, um, yeah, we tend to do, let's do, let's do a short iteration. Let's scope out a, a piece that's not a six-month piece. Generally, it's a week, two weeks, less than a month kind of thing to say, okay, let's, let's pump something out pretty quick, get some feedback from the client, sooner rather than later and make sure we're, we're traveling down the right path. Well, just in general, that sounds like good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, yeah, that, that's probably more common these days. I mean, certainly the, the old days of, you know, you get a bunch of stuff and you can run off and you build things for months and then you show up later and say, okay, here's what I made you. <laughs> and the world changed in the meantime. Yeah. The world changed or, you know, anything changed. The business got tweaked or, Maybe you read something wrong and you ended up taking a left turn instead of a right. And what you're ending up delivering is going to freak out your customer and there's going to be badness at the yep. end of the project. Nobody wants that. So the, having the short things allows you to course correct quickly. Um, people can see things. And it can also help with scheduling too where, uh, you know, clients can be a lot more flexible on a schedule when they see regular work progressing towards an endpoint. Yep. Um, and it also helps on, on kind of the micro scheduling. Okay, in the next three weeks, we need the data analysis person here. But in the in the, in the iteration that's coming after that, we no longer need that staffing. You know, so you kind of better manage. Here's you know, you lay out the plan of here's the six iterations we think we're going to do, and here's the staff we need for it. Here's who needs to show up on at that point. Oh yeah, that's good. That's a good uh, observation. It certainly could help with that. Yeah, particularly when you're often working with larger companies, that that is a concern you're not just always talking to the same person yep yep <laughs> all right well this has been a great conversation on some uh, deep thoughts about app construction database design and project management that hopefully people found entertaining carol i want to thank you for being on zoja talk well thanks for having me it was fun Excellent. I always like to hear that because then when I contact the next person to say, hey, you should be on Social Talk, they can hear other people saying, hey, it was fun. Paul didn't scare me or whatever. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day.